if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. Every now and then, Corey Lakatos and I do our book club episodes, where we discuss Catholic novels that we find interesting and helpful. And if you talk to fans of Catholic novels, one title that always comes up in conversations is Walter Miller's 1959 science fiction saga, A Canticle for Leibowitz. In fact, since we started the book club here on the podcast, it's the most requested title for us to discuss, which we were going to do anyway because Corey and I both love the book. So, before I get to our discussion about it, let me set the stage with a summary description. The premise of the story is that in the late 20th century, human civilization was annihilated by a global nuclear war, which the few survivors came to refer to as the Flame Deluge. Now that name should remind you of the story of Noah, in which most of humanity was destroyed by a deluge of water, because a canticle for Leibowitz intentionally recalls many aspects of the story of Noah, including man's propensity to do evil and the preservation of the church through an ark. After the flame deluge, the survivors blamed the quest for knowledge, including literacy, the arts, and the sciences, for having created the technologies that destroyed the world. And so, during a period after the nuclear holocaust known as the simplification, all books, illustrations, and any other written artifacts were destroyed and made illegal. Humanity reverted to a primitive, illiterate, hunter-gatherer civilization. But an engineer named Leibowitz, who had worked at a nuclear lab in the Utah desert, converted to Catholicism after the nuclear war and founded a new monastic order that was dedicated to finding, smuggling, memorizing, archiving, and copying books, any books of any type, on any subject. And the abbey of the Order of the Monks of Leibowitz, out in the remote desert wasteland, became a kind of ark for the preservation of human knowledge in general, and Catholicism in particular. So, that's the background. But the novel is structured into three parts, each a vignette or snapshot of the work of the Order of Leibowitz, set 600 years apart from each other. So, part one of the novel is set in the 26th century, 600 years after the flame deluge. Part two is 600 years later after that, and part three, 600 years after that. Now, the saga that is spread over these 1800 years follows the restoration of human civilization. The monks of the Order of Leibowitz preserve and help reconstruct human literacy, arts, and the sciences, as well as Orthodox Catholicism. And over the thousands of years that the novel covers, civilization progresses 
from a primitive dark age back to a technological age that's actually more advanced than the one that was destroyed by the flame deluge. So, by the last section of the novel, humanity has interstellar spacecraft with colonies in other solar systems. But humanity itself remains mired in sin. Born again, it has now reached the stars, but is still drawn to evil and self-destruction. And so, by the end of the novel, the Abbey of St. Leibowitz, like Noah was in his day, is surrounded by a wicked culture. And global politics has again brought the world to the edge of another nuclear war. But the Pope has a plan. The Catholic Church has a starship, a new Noah's Ark. And as the bombs begin to fall in a new flame deluge, a contingent of monks of the Order of St. Leibowitz is sent out into the cosmos as missionaries to preserve the Catholic Church and the treasury of human knowledge among the colonies and beyond. So, with that summary, here is Corey's and my discussion of A Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller. If you have any thoughts, questions, or suggestions, send me an email, greg at consideringcatholicism.com. So, Corey, when did you first read this book? Was it before you entered the church or after? It was before. I was either in high school or it was early in college, so it was still a number of years before I converted. Um, and the the specifically Catholic aspect of the novel, obviously, it's it's very obvious. It's right there, but it didn't it didn't strike me particularly at that time. Um, I thought it was a very interesting science fiction novel for what it what that aspect of it is and and the and certainly a depiction of christians in a in a science fiction future was interesting to me but then later after i became catholic this novel kind of resurfaced in my mind i went and reread it um and and got a lot more out of it at that time yeah for me i didn't read it until about i guess maybe 2 years or 3 years before i entered the church mm-hmm. I mean, I was a big science fiction fan. I'd read everything from Asimov to Heinlein to, mm-hmm. you know, Frank Herbert to whatever, sure, right? If sure. I could get my hands on it, I read it. There used to be back in the old days before you were born, when I was like in middle school, there was a, a science fiction short story magazine called mm-hmm. Analog. Sure. And I just, I subscribed to that. Like when I was in middle school, even in high school, you'd get the little monthly thing and it would have all mm-hmm. these really great little science fiction. It was before the internet. Right, right. And, you know, I just consumed that stuff. And then I read all those things, but I had never, for whatever reason, even though this was a Hugo award-winning book, I just had never gotten around to reading Miller's Canticle for Leibowitz. And, and I read it when I, I read it because it was recommended as a Catholic novel. Okay. So my approach to it was I was reading it, oh, this is going to be interesting, but I was reading it for the Catholicism. Mm-hmm. And when I finished the book, I remember closing it going, wow, this really makes me want to enter the Catholic church mm-hmm. more than I did before I read the book. It served a sort of evangelistic purpose for me mm-hmm. and kind of cemented, helped cement my decision to enter the church. So this book works on multiple levels mm-hmm. as a science fiction book, as a Catholic book or both. But bottom line, we've both reread it now in preparation mm-hmm. for this episode. What are your takeaways from this book or your favorite parts or the themes that 
you identify most with? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll start with sort of a, maybe one of the, the broader themes of it that is present in each of the three different sections and is, is kind of central to, to the whole novel. Um, and, and I think, like you said, this works as both a, a science fiction concept because this is a, a story in the future and it, it's definitely relevant to the Catholic Church. Um, but really, I think those two approaches to the novel need to work together if we're going to have a, a full and accurate understanding of what, what we're reading here. Um, but it, it's the theme of the church as a, um, a, a beneficiary of mankind and as a preserver of mankind's culture um, and sort of the, the patrimony of, of the past. Um, because, of course, in, in the beginning, you have, it's been several hundred years since the flame deluge. Um, but you still have the uh, the abbey preserving all of this um, culture and technology that they don't really understand, um, but they're preserving it in the hopes of it being a benefit to mankind in the future. And then in the second section, you you see that this is is starting to happen that that um, technology is starting to be um, restored, scientific understanding is starting to come back, uh, literacy and culture are are beginning to to very um, at the very beginning of flowering again. And in the third section, you have a society that's gone past where ours is and, um, and the church has kind of been left in the dust. It's, it's seen as irrelevant now. But then you have a second flame deluge and it, and it all comes crashing down. And the church is, again, preserving human knowledge and technology. Now they had to, to go um, to another planet. But so you have the, the idea that societies come and go, governments come and go, civilizations come and go, but the church is constant and the church has mankind's spiritual um, welfare in mind first and foremost, but also wants to, as, as best as she can, uh, preserve these things for, um, for mankind's material welfare as well. You know, when you go to the Sistine Chapel and you look at the ceiling and you see Michelangelo's panels, mm -hmm. he depicts noah's flood mm -hmm. and he has kind of one panel where the water's coming down right you know they're running up the hill and the animals are in there but he's got another panel where you see the last of the sinners drowning in the high <laughs> yes. water and you see never see that on this church nursery wall right and you see the ark noah's ark floating you know on the sea short distance away with noah's head poking out or whatever but it looks like a basilica like a church mm -hmm. Because there's this strong notion that Noah's Ark was a foreshadowing of the church, which is ultimately the ark that preserves humanity and life. And I think that this book sort of draws that theme out because you, he makes the contention that the church, Catholic church in particular, has always been the preserver of human life, human civilization, human knowledge throughout all of the ages, throughout all of the ups and downs of civilization. And then he projects that into the future. Uh, where the Catholic Church is that that arc, right? And and this is one of the great um, opportunities of science fiction is you can make a theme like that, which is completely borne out in real human history, much more plain and apparent um, when you can put it in a in a context like this, where there are things like uh, uh, the global disaster of nuclear war and and ages and ages of cultural and technological darkness. What are the other things about this book that stand out in your mind or the themes or scenes or elements that, you know, are most potent for you? Yeah, this will get us into a conversation that 
um, is a theme that goes throughout the book, but you have um, towards the towards the end in that third section, you have a, a conflict between uh, the the abbot uh, Zerchi and a doctor who wants to set up a um, essentially a, a euthanasia clinic um, nearby the abbey because there has been sort of the the first shots of nuclear war and people are are fleeing um, and there's radiation sickness and all and all kinds of um, horrible suffering and the the abbot is of course opposed to them euthanizing people and and you get this um this statement by the doctor and he says essentially um if you want to talk about fighting evil i'm fighting pain pain is the only evil i recognize it's the only one i can do anything about and so you have um the, this encapsulation of this society that it says it's for the the good of man it's a technological society but it it sacrifices the individual and it sacrifices life um, and it's not comfortable with suffering and pain in, in accompanying people in suffering and pain and, and helping them to, to bear that in a, in a way that's united with Christ. It, it, it can only eliminate it. it. It's technology has, has given it the impression that it has power even over life and death. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a reductionist view of life, mm-hmm. right? And Miller is, you know, not even using his imagination. That's, sure. That's secularism. It's nihilism today. It's a sort of anti-humanism that th- there is no transcendent meaning to life. There is no eternal uh, dimension to life or no eternal significance to life. Uh, we have just the material animalistic thing and try to minimize pain. So if somebody's, if a dog isn't suffering, you put the dog down. Mm-hmm. If a human isn't suffering, you put the human down. And, and this, see, okay. The euthanasia element of this book, and I want to talk about that scene and mm-hmm. actually a scene that occurs right after right. that, but I want to back up a little bit and talk about what I think one of the other dominant themes of this book is. Mm-hmm. So Miller wrote it in the 1950s, obviously before John Paul II first began talking about the culture of life and the culture of death. But this book is all about the culture of life and the culture of death. Mm-hmm. And I think Miller's premise because it's John Paul II's premise, because it's just the truth. The church. It's yeah. the, the church's premise, is that uh, you have from God, down Ab and Eve, down through uh, their son Seth and the line of Seth and whatnot, you have this eternal sense that God's people stand for life. And they stand for the propagation of life. And they stand for life lived in its fullness in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And I could you know, walk through the Bible and show a thousand different ways from the Old Testament, New Testament that. In contrast to that, there is this other culture, this other civilization that, that has run from the time of Cain down through the ages of the Old Testament, whatnot, that is always the perpetuation of death. And part of what it, that is, is a devaluation of the image of God in people mm-hmm. and in a reduction of human life to something less than God's image. And then that always results in horrors. Mm-hmm. So the sacrificing of the children to Molech or, mm-hmm. you know, whatnot. Ultimately, the horror of Roman crucifixion and everything else is this devaluation of human life. Right? Mm-hmm. And that that continues throughout human history. Adam and Eve is the ark and is the civilization and is the culture of life. And in Miller's book here, in this novel, he projects that 2,000 years into the future, that the church is always standing for that, but outside the church, it 
always revolved, devolved to death. Mm-hmm. It devolved to death in his book, of course, in the first nuclear war, the flame deluge that would occur around our time. You see it in all three sections of this book. So in the first section, you see the monks at the abbey, the Leibowitz Abbey, and yet outside it, there are you know marauders and some mm-hmm. kind of like Mad Max well, crazy it, world. And there's right? this, this whole passage where it's talking about how... Um, because this is a, a nuclear apocalypse story, of course, you have mutants. And so you, you have people with all these horrible deformities, um, both mental and physical. And you have this, this uh, impulse in the culture to say, um, well, we ought to just simply kill them in, in infancy. Um, and the Pope is very strong in speaking out against this, that if it is born of woman, it is human and must be afforded care. Um, and, and the mutants actually get the nickname of the Pope's children um, because he's the one who's defending them. Yeah, the mutancy thing is interesting through this book, too, mm-hmm. because all the way up into the end of the book, right, with um, Mrs. Grails and whatnot, there's this notion. She has a dog, like a six-legged dog, yeah. and they talk about that, uh, that, the, that the first flame deluge, you know, the first nuclear war had introduced all these genetic disorders that still thousands of years plagued humanity. And that seemed to me to be a pretty transparent reference to that uh, human sin perpetuates Satan perpetuates itself into mm-hmm. the you know, generations forward. So man's bad choices, man's sin, the sins of the fathers get perpetuated into the generations forward. So right. even this poor woman's six-legged dog <laughs> or whatever, right, is all about how we can't shed this, the persistent sin that lives. And yet you see not only, you know, the po- thing with the Pope's children, the church preserving them, that, that right into the very end, the abbot is ministering and treating these mutants with dignity mm-hmm. because there is still a human soul. Right. And he talks about that. There's one scene where the monks talk about whether there's a human soul and where there is a human soul, it demands dignity. Mm-hmm. But that brings us back to this euthanasia thing because right. it figures, but it has to be put in that context. So I think that the last couple of chapters of this book really deal with this euthanasia theme. And I want to come to that. But in the context of it, what you see is a, a Roman Catholic church over thousands of years, then the first flame deluge, and then over another couple thousand years, the Roman Catholic church continues to preserve human life to be a constant source of truth, goodness, and beauty in the world. And yet it is a world that is a culture of death that devalues humanity and is nihilistic. And it'll ultimately destroy itself again. Mm-hmm. Now, what happens near the end, as you alluded to this doctor, is the government sets up, when the first nuclear blasts start happening, the government sets up these green star camps, which is their you know, symbol for come to the euthanasia center. And there's a couple things that are horrible about it. Like you say, there's the interview with the doctor, right? <laughs> and then there's another thing that's kind of horrible about this camp. At this one green star camp that they set up outside the monastery, they erect this large statue in front of it. And the abbot, Zerki, looks at it. And the quote I have here is that the statue in front of the camp was the weak, effeminate Jesus. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't identified as Jesus, but it was a who looked exactly like all the weak, effeminate Jesuses in bad art. In bad yeah. art. And he said, you could imagine this Jesus saying, Bring me the children, but not depart from me into everlasting fire, accursed ones, or flogging the money changers out of the temple. And underneath it, on the pedestal below this statue, was the word comfort. So what you have is 
a debased Christianity. They're, they have a debased Christ, a Christ that is not bold, is not strong, uh, does not stand up. And that's one of the things that appealed to me so much about this book in terms of coming into the church is it portrays a Catholic church that's prophetic and bold and confident in its message and its mission. Well, yeah, and, and that's just a persistent theme in the book too. Is is that um, secular society when it the po- when power and technology goes to its head, it apes the church. Um, it it proclaims itself Lord. It, it's it's basically another version of the Tower of Babel, where it's let us build a tower to the heavens and we will be like gods. Um, it, it's a sort of counterfeit church and a and a counterfeit way of trying to serve man that all is ultimately to his destruction. I think the scene where they erect this giant statue of the weak, effeminate sort of Jesus figure in front of the euthanasia camp outside the monastery with the word comfort in it is also a portrayal of sort of antichrist. Yeah, yeah. You know, so what you have is the abbot and the monastery and the church standing up for the true Christ who's bold and confident and prophetic and across the street is this weak, effeminate, nihilistic antichrist and the people have to choose so as you say he talks to the doctor and the doctor says look i'm going over there to basically you know put people down like dogs that are suffering but then right after that he meets a young mother Mm -hmm. and this mother has a young child and they've both been deformed by the nuclear blasts and they're suffering from radiation sickness and in fact i think he says that the hair and stuff has been blown off the kids, so you can't tell if it's a boy or a girl. Right, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a terribly heartbreaking Horrific thing. situation. Yeah. And, the doctor, and the doctor says to this woman, you know, you're just going to get sicker and sicker and sicker, and your kid is sicker and sicker, and you're going to be more and more miserable until you kind of puke your guts out and die miserably, but you can come across the street here and end it. I'll give you a shot and put you down. And so she's going to take the kid over there, kind of, scene unfolds and the abbot confronts her mm-hmm. and they kind of go back and forth in this conversation but i, I have the quote mm-hmm. here from the book and it was really powerful and she's saying look you know my my, my child is suffering and i'm suffering and i just want to go to sleep and end it and he gives her a rosary and he says what god calls you to do is to bear suffering and she says well why i can't why would a god want me to suffer and he says no he doesn't want you to suffer it's not God's will that you suffer. It's a God's will that you rise above suffering, which I thought was powerful. Uh, that God calls us not to pain, but he gives us pain as an opportunity to rise above that pain. And he said, you must bear this and die like a human. Uh, and, not, and then he says to her, uh, don't be an accomplice to the murder at the euthanasia camp. So anyway, she's, she, he, he's failing to convince her. And finally, she's going to walk across the street or more or less with the child. Mm-hmm. and be put to sleep or whatever. And then she says, stop asking me. And then here's the quote. He says, no, I'm not asking you. As a priest of Christ, I am commanding you by the authority of almighty God not to lay hands on your child, not to offer her life in sacrifice to a false God of expedient mercy. I do not advise you. I adjure you and command you in the name of Christ the King. Is that clear? It says, as he continued to look at her, her eyes fell. For an instant, he had feared that the girl would laugh in his face. When Holy Church occasionally hinted that she still considered 
her authority to be supreme over all nations and superior to the authority of states, men in these times tended to snicker. Mm -hmm. And that's what happens. She goes over to the euthanasia camp. He shouts. They send out the cops. The cops throw the abbot against the cop car. Mm -hmm. uh, And they're going to arrest him for basically disturbing the peace. He's, He's basically powerless to stop her. Well, he's not unlike the abortion protesters who stand outside abortion clinics and are getting dragged off by the FBI right now Mm. for daring Mm. to stand in front of an abortion clinic. And he's standing in front of the euthanasia clinic. And he says then, as he's being hooked up by the cop car, here's the other quote, and I'll stop quoting the book. But he says, if only they had not forced him to stop where she could witness God's priest summarily overruled by Caesar's traffic cop. Mm-hmm. Never to him had Christ's kingship seemed more distant. And so I was really poignantly struck by this the first time I read it, the second time I read this book, that this really lays out the contrast between the church and its mission, its prophetic role, its task of preservation of life versus the culture of death and the secular culture of nihilism. And the sense of futility that we can feel sometimes in the face of that nihilistic culture of death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's a tragedy, really, because we, we see through all of these ages, because this story spans more than a thousand years, that society rarely listens to the church um, and always to its own detriment. Does it, does it ignore the church? Um, but it still continues to do that. Um, and we, we have hope and there are signs of hope in here that I don't think this is a, a fatalistic or a, um, a despairing novel, but it is very, very clear eyed and very tragic in a way of portraying what happens when society and when individuals continually ignore the church and its call for the culture of life and, and choose instead the culture of death. Interesting point you make there about it's not a despairing novel. It's a hope novel. Because that exact question is asked a few chapters prior to this scene that I just quoted. Mm -hmm. Because we haven't really talked about this much. I may mention it in the introduction. What the church has done is prepared a contingency plan. So Mm -hmm. the Pope has prepared a contingency plan, the the Pope in New Rome. And they have built a starship. Because at this point, humanity has colonies around other planets and stars. And so they've prepared a starship. And they have a crew, not only of monks, but three bishops, because bishops can make new priests. And I think there's a cardinal on board who can make new bishops. And the plan is to send this expedition out into the colonies so that if Earth is destroyed in another nuclear war, the church will continue its mission to humanity in the rest of the cosmos. and. They have tapped one of the monks in the abbey, Brother Joshua, Mm -hmm. to be the captain of this expedition or the leader of this expedition. And they he has to decide whether he'll accept this mission. And the abbot gives him 30 minutes to make this (laughs) decision. And so he kind of goes outside because the nuclear bombs are going to be falling imminently. And he there's a, a moment where he's trying to decide what to do. And he said, if Rome has prepared this expedition, does that mean that Rome has despaired of humanity? 
And then if you recall, he says, no, wait a minute. He has this realization that this contingency plan is not an act of despair, but an act of hope. Mm -hmm. The notion that despite the culture of death, despite humanity's propensity to continually commit suicide, to destroy itself. Literally, yeah. And literally, literally, yeah. literally, that the church believes in humanity and the church will continue to be the ark of humanity into the future. I mean, you, you could look at Noah building his ark and say, was that an act of despair, an act of hope? And that's really what Brother Joshua asks. Mm. And so the irony is at the very end of this book, kind of the last you know, page or whatever, they board this starship, this expedition, and the church continues out to humanity in, in the cosmos mm-hmm. to continue to be the ark. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of things that we haven't gotten into. This oh, is a sure. pretty rich book. There's all kinds of characters and scenes and subplots, and we could, we could literally do a couple hours oh, on, sure. on this. But let's talk about some final takeaways and why it is that you would encourage someone to read this book or what the things that you think that they would get out of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at, at the basic level, um, if I'm going to recommend a book to somebody, it always has to just plain be an interesting book to read and a, and a compelling read, um, a page turner in one form or another. And I think this one really is. You have the three different sections that are all different in a way, but they're very um, interlaced. Um, the, the author does a, a very good job of interlacing them and they're all very, very compelling and interesting. The characters are, are very well fleshed out. Um, and so if for nothing else, I recommend reading it for, for that. Um, but then the, the themes that we've been talking about and other themes are, are just incredibly relevant to any age, but I think especially to ours. Um, as you alluded to earlier, um, he's, he's writing, Miller is writing in the 1950s and he's projecting this nuclear war as sometime in the late 20th century, early 21st century. Um, and I think this would be relevant even, even if, you know, there hadn't been nuclear saber rattling lately, which there has been. Um, but simply we, we are the heirs of the society that Miller saw in the fifties and, and the, the, the culture of death that he saw growing up at that time has only gotten more advanced and the, and the church has spoken boldly in favor of a culture of life. Um, but I think reading this novel is, is really helpful for getting that perspective on the church's relationship with the world and the church's relationship for, with humanity in our present moment and how each of us in just the way that we live our lives, but also um, how we talk with our neighbors, how we vote, all of those things can be um, helping society to be hopefully moving in the direction of life rather than the direction of death. Yeah, I, I think is sort of a last word for me. Again, I, the Catholic part of this novel was what struck me because mm. when I read it, the lens I read it through. But to me, it was such an, a fascinating portrayal of the Catholic Church and of course, by the time at the end of this novel, it's spanned 4,000 years, mm-hmm. you know, the 2000 before the war and the 2000 years after the war. And it's a, it's a compelling image of the perpetual mission and identity of the Catholic Church and what it has been and can be and needs to be. And I think that if I was honest, I'd say, you know, this book was written in the 50s before a lot of the changes in the church in the 60s and 70s and 80s came about. And I found myself, 
even reading it again, longing for a church that speaks with that same bold confidence and that same sense of its own identity and mission vis-a-vis the world around it. Mm -hmm. And I hope that as the church goes into the future, it can continue to be that, that church, because I think that this novel shows us why that church is so necessary to be salt and light in a decaying you know, civilization of death. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, and of course, the church always throughout its ages goes through periods of strength and weakness and, and sort of confidence in, in, in itself and its divinely given authority and, and lack of confidence. Um, and, and so I don't think we need to be discouraged by the fact that, at least in a lot of sectors of the church right now, there's a lack of confidence and a, and a lack of belief in the church's authority um, because the Holy Spirit is in the church and, and will bring about revival in various ways in various times. And we even in our own time have seen the prophetic witness of someone like St. John Paul II, who I think in his own way was, was very much speaking out of the authority of the church in a confident way, trying to uh, encourage the world um, to, to hear the gospel um, and particularly the gospel of life. Well, and this is a good reminder that somewhere in some abbey or some parish or somewhere or maybe multiple places, the, the church is continuing its mission mm-hmm. and that all of us, in a sense, can turn our parish into its own abbey of St. Leibowitz. We can all be missionaries in that sense and serve the once and forever mission uh, that, that God gave to Peter. Right. And no matter how bad things get, I mean, I mean, this situation in this novel is, is worse than anything we, we have yet experienced, but the church still prevails and, and the gates of hell do not overcome it. Last word on that. And then I think we'll have to wrap this up and pick mm-hmm. it up some other time. But I just sent you an article this morning about the growth of the, I don't know what even to call it, the euthanasia industry in Canada, Netherlands, other parts of, mm-hmm. uh, of the developed world. And it's almost as bad as the green star camps in the book. In some ways it's worse because it's not even a, a reaction to a crisis like a nuclear bombing in, in the novel. It's, it's a reaction simply to the pain and despair of, of poor and vulnerable and suffering people. I, I, I wasn't ignorant of the situation before you sent me the article, but that article broke my heart because it's just the, 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 a, an easy way out, a false mercy, like, like the abbot says. Well, it, you know, the thing that chilled me to the bone in that article, and I guess now we're talking about it, like we haven't shared with the people, but uh, <laughs> it, we'll have to do another episode on this, is they said in some of these places, Canada in particular, the Netherlands, Germany, some of these other them coming to a, I suppose, a state, a, near, a, you. state near you, is that euthanasia is becoming the social safety net. Mm-hmm. When, when people um, become addicted or poor or depressed or handicapped, um, you put them down. Well, we already have that in this country as abortion as being a kind of social safety net, right? either preventing people from being born into poverty or as a so-called um, solution for um, their poverty. And that's what this novel reminds us of, that it is the, the mission and the identity and the ethos of the Roman Catholic Church to stand against this mm-hmm. and preserve the culture of life into the future. as. Noah's Ark was a foretelling 
of what the church is and must always be until Christ returns. Mm-hmm. Yes. Right. So anyway, Canticle for Leibowitz by Walter Miller. Great read. Read it. Yeah, thanks. Thank you. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? And please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its Saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com. And email me to let me know what you think. Greg at consideringcatholicism.com.